Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. And as per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's happening in our community this week. Namely, Alpha is starting on February 7th. It's a seven-week online course, and you can register on Realm. If you're not familiar with this course, it is a great opportunity to invite friends or family to walk through the course together. It's a safe place to discover and discuss questions around life and faith. And really the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this week's podcast. If you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant, because God is here, and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So good to be joined with you today as we gather the worship from our different locations. And the high point of this online gathering we have is the meal of communion that we'll be coming to uh, after we look at God's Word. And today we are concluding our teaching series that we've called Grappling with Scripture, in which we've been looking at some of the questions that we and others have about this book. Because the claim of Scripture is quite profound. In fact, this is what it says of itself in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And remember, this is a word of God. And in verse 12, we read this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we looked in the first weekend of this teaching series about some of the ways that the Bible is really distinctive from other spiritual writings. And we looked at some of the reasons why we should look on it as an authoritative book. But this week, I really want to focus in on the New Testament writings specifically. And I really want to ask, okay, so how did we get these books in the New Testament? By what process did these writings get selected that we now have in our New Testament? Because the Gospels weren't written down until many years after Jesus died. So why was that? And added to that, you'll hear some individuals suggest that it really wasn't until 400 years after Christ's death and resurrection that the Bible was finally put together and recognized, accepted, at a church council, and really they suggest that that was done just for reasons of power and control. So is that accurate? I mean, where did the New Testament come from? So there are going to be two parts to our study today. Really, first, I really want to kind of go through a rough timeline so we each have a broad picture of how and when we got these writings. 
And then secondly, I want to look at the criteria by which the books of the New Testament were chosen. All right, so first, a timeline. Second, the criteria. And really, due to our topic today, I want to mention again, this might feel more like a lecture than a sermon. And this really might feel more like a, you know, a college intro class to the New Testament. I, we're going to be a bit more, longer than normal because there's just so much I want us to touch on. But, so I encourage you really to listen carefully. And really, if it would help, take notes along the way. Okay, so let's start by recognizing that Jesus didn't come writing anything, not a thing. I mean, in contrast to Jesus, the prophet Muhammad said that the angel Gabriel had revealed to him what is now written in the Quran. And so what Muhammad then did was he dictated it to someone else and it was written down. So for Muhammad and our Muslim friends, the Muslim faith is really founded upon a book. But in the Christian faith, that's not the case in the same way. Because the Christian faith is centered not on a book, although the book is very important, but it is centered and founded on a person, on Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't come writing anything. But he taught, he preached, he ministered, he healed, he demonstrated the work of God in power. So God's word to us, his definitive word to us, is Jesus. And that's what the early church recognized. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, which took place somewhere around 30 AD, because Oddly enough, Jesus was likely born around 3 to 4 BC. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus didn't say to his followers, okay, now go write something. Instead, he said, go be my witnesses. Go make disciples of all people. And so that's what they did. And that was their focus. So when the early church began its work in ministry, Nobody started out writing a book. They started out preaching, ministering, serving, caring for those most in need. And what scholars call that early preaching of the church is the kerygma of the church. And kerygma, it's a Greek word that just means the verbal proclamation of the church, which largely was the gospel. It was the good news of Jesus, Jesus' life, death, his resurrection. So the earliest New Testament was actually in oral form, not written. It was the preaching of the church as they were telling the story of Jesus and what he taught and did. So really, this is how the New Testament began. It began orally in the preaching and teaching of the early church. Now, we have a difficult time understanding today just how orally focused the society of that ancient day was because it was an oral culture. I mean, in our day, people tend to wonder, how can you remember any information that isn't written down? I can't even remember the three things I went to the grocery store if they're not written down. But that ancient day was so different than our own day, in part because 
Most people in that day, by far, couldn't read or write. In fact, scholars estimate that only 3 to 5% of society in that ancient Middle Eastern day would have been able to read or write. Which, when you think about it, it means that when Jesus was teaching people, probably only 3 to 5 out of every 100 people would have been able to read the Old Testament scripture for themselves. And Jesus knew this. I mean, he often ministered among peasants. And, and so Jesus' sayings were often quite simple. They were easy to memorize, like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And that's really one of the reasons why Jesus tells so many stories and parables. In fact, scholars estimate that about 80% of what Jesus said and did was either put in story form or in a kind of structure, whether it was parallelism or some other structure, that was designed to enable people to remember easily what he said and then be able to share it with others themselves. So that's what the early church passed on orally to the people that they taught and ministered to. But there did come a time I mean, fairly early on, where these people who were hearing these stories of Jesus from the apostles, they started thinking when the apostle left town, okay, we should write some of this stuff down so we can remember it. So those who could read and write began to do that. So fairly early, scholars tell us, probably even in the 30s, so not very long after Jesus' resurrection, people began to write down some of the stories, some of the teachings of Jesus. So beginning in the 30s or 40s AD, there began to be what scholars call the pre-gospels or the proto-gospels. Now, these weren't the four gospels that we now have, but they were in some cases early sources for those four gospels, where these writers began to record just in simple form some of the stories and teaching that they heard from Jesus and the apostles. Okay, so let's put the Gospels on hold for a moment. Because somewhere around 35 AD, so about five years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was this Jewish leader named Saul, also known as Paul. And he was an up-and-comer. He was on the fast track, trained by a leading rabbi of that day. And Saul was commissioned to crush this early Christian movement. So Saul began going around persecuting and arresting followers of Jesus. He even presided, as the book of Acts tells us, over the death of the very first Christian martyr, who was Stephen. But Saul's life was transformed when he encountered Jesus in a blinding vision along the road to Damascus. And Saul turned in faith to Jesus, was baptized, and he was called by Jesus to take the good news of Christ throughout the Roman Empire. Okay, so beginning in the 40s, Saul, now primarily called Paul, starts traveling throughout the Roman Empire, and he took the good news of Jesus, and he started churches in different towns and cities. So when he would then move on to another city to start another church, he would write back 
to those new churches that he had just planted. And in his letters, he helped guide them in understanding the teaching of Christ. He would answer their questions. He would address specific challenges that churches in that city were facing. And he would guide them in understanding how they should then live as they follow Jesus. So Paul's first letter at least the first one we have in the New Testament, it was written somewhere around the year 50 AD. And it was either the letter of Galatians or 1 Thessalonians. So this becomes really the first document that we now have in our New Testament. In Paul's other letters, think of Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and others. They were all written from about the year 50 to 65 AD. So why did his letter stop in 65 AD? Because Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome in 65 AD. So Paul wrote all of his letters in that span between about 50 to 65 AD. Now, none of our New Testament gospels were written or finalized before this. But they did have these really beginnings of Gospels, these pre- or proto-Gospels, which were collections of the teachings of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, his miracles, his passion. They were apparently even being handed around from about 40 to 65 AD, along with the Apostle Paul's letters. All right, so let's see on our timeline again where we're at at this point. So we have Jesus Christ, who is the gospel, and then we have the kerygma, the oral teaching of the early church in the 30s and 40s. We have Paul's letters that are beginning to be written and sent out, and we likely have these pre-gospels or early collections of the sayings, miracles, and passion narratives of Jesus. So this is where we're at, up to the writing of the first gospel. So what about the first gospel? Well, it was written, scholars believe, around 65 AD, and it was the gospel of, want to guess? Mark. It was Mark. Okay, so where did the gospel of Mark come from? And who was Mark? Because he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Well, what we find is that the apostle Peter, he had traveled to Rome, and as he's in Rome, Peter's preaching and teaching. Now, Peter, again, he was a simple Galilean fisherman, likely didn't speak Greek very well. So he has a translator, an interpreter, who is with him, who really helps him translate what Peter preaches while he's in Rome. But like Paul, Peter was also put to death for his faith in Rome, right around 65 AD. Now, we learn from the writings of an early church Christian leader named Papias that Mark was indeed Peter's interpreter and that Mark's gospel is his written record of the apostle Peter's teaching. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. I mean, It's easy to understand why no one was writing full Gospels before the apostles started to die off. Because really, in some sense, why would you? You had the apostles there. I mean, because the apostles had been there. They had walked with Jesus. They'd been equipped and discipled by Jesus. I mean, they could tell you the stories and teachings themselves. 
But once the apostles started to die off, it becomes important to actually capture their teaching and write it down. And we know how this works. I mean, for example, my dad, growing up, he had all these stories about our family's history, uh, really going back to our ancestors in Northern Ireland and Scotland. So he knew and shared these family stories that really, it seemed no one else knew. And we kids kept saying as we got older to one another, okay, someone needs to write these stories down. I mean, I would guess you've likely said similar things about your own family's history. And so dad, not long before he passed away, did that. He wrote a history of his and our family's story. And that's really pretty much what happened in the early church, right around 65 AD. Because in 65, again, Nero puts the apostle Peter to death, and then later he beheads the apostle Paul. And then after this, Mark says, Essentially, I better write this stuff down because now it becomes critical to write this stuff down. And, and so most scholars believe that Mark was written right somewhere around 65 AD. And what he wrote was the reflections, the memoirs, the teachings of the Apostle Peter. All the things that he heard the Apostle Peter teach for which Peter was willing to die. Okay. So how did the other Gospels come to be? Well, those pre-Gospels or proto-Gospel collections that we mentioned, scholars have a name for them. And they really have given them very simple names. So the names they have for the pre-Gospel writings, for one set of those writings, they call M. And then another one they call Q. And then a third one they call L. Clearly, scholars didn't put a ton of deep thought into those names. And, and here's what biblical scholars tell us. That Matthew and Luke's Gospels were written somewhere right around 80 AD, somewhere between about 75 to 85 AD. And here's what they discovered. That when you read the Gospels with great attentiveness in their original languages, you find that Matthew and Luke both quote almost word for word passages in Mark's gospel, which by that point, again, had been being passed around for many years. So they apparently borrowed from Mark as one of their sources. And understand, this isn't some kind of new observation. I mean, even the early church father, Augustine, recognized and pointed to the likelihood of how the gospel writers borrowed from each other and even potentially from other sources. Okay, so what does that tell us? I mean, it tells us that really in all likelihood that Matthew and Luke apparently used Mark's gospel to help shape the outline and some of the content of their gospels. And that they also likely used these other pre-gospel writings, Q, M, L, as they assembled their gospels. Because again, so much material is just word for word identical. Okay, now this is all called the four-source hypothesis for how the Gospels were put together. And it's really one of the ways of explaining these commonalities that are in the Gospels. Now, some people are bothered by this idea. I mean, they, they think, 
I don't want to hear that. No. Each writer just sat down and wrote what the Holy Spirit prompted them to specifically write. And we totally agree that the Holy Spirit guided and inspired the writers as they wrote. Absolutely. So why couldn't they use other writings as they compiled their Gospels being led by the Spirit? In fact, that's a process Luke describes in his Gospel. I mean, Luke tells us how he went about writing his Gospel. Listen to this. This is from Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Okay, so Luke is saying here, I mean, there are many others who've already recorded and written down the events and teachings of Jesus. I mean, for example, in the pre-gospel writings that we've been speaking about. And, and Luke says, I have carefully investigated all these narratives, and from them, I also have compiled an orderly account of what's been written. Now, does the idea that the gospel writers did research, homework, study of other accounts that already existed, does that discredit them? Or does it get them more credibility to you as ones who did indeed look deeply into these realities and writings? I mean, to me, it gives the Gospels more credibility that they actually researched and read the earliest eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did and taught. And then they carefully put it together in their own Holy Spirit-directed way in their own Gospels. And the thing was, the Gospel writers were each writing in a different part of the Roman Empire. They didn't write their Gospels together. So they really had their own unique variations, writing styles, and stories as they wrote. And yet we have these Gospels that, while clearly unique in many ways, they also have just this almost stunning unity in what they're declaring. And the fact that they do describe many events from just slightly different perspectives, does that not actually add to their credibility? I mean, you would expect that they each had their own perspectives of their experiences with Jesus. So here's one thing I want us to know. When you read the Gospels, you are reading credible first century accounts of what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. Okay, so... Let's take a look at where we're at at this point, all right? So, okay, Jesus rose from that later ascended to heaven right around 30 AD, and he is the word. And we have the kerygma, which is the preaching of the early church. We have these pre-gospel collections, which included M, Q, L. We have the first gospel, Mark, which is written right around 65 AD. And then we have the letters of Paul, which were written again between about 50 and 65 AD. And then we have other letters and epistles not written by Paul. 
And, and these epistles are called the Catholic or general epistles. And that includes the writing of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Jude. All written somewhere between 50 and 100 A.D. And then Matthew and Luke's Gospels were written right between about 75 to 85 A.D. And then there's John's Gospel. Let's talk about John's Gospel. Because John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they really seem pretty similar. In fact, they're called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic meaning to see together. Because they all really sound very much the same. I mean, Jesus sounds the same in them. Even though they have some very different details from each other. But John's gospel sounds very different when you read it. Very different. And the early church even recognized it. And that's why they called John's gospel the spiritual gospel. Partly because it just sounded so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what was going on with John's gospel? Well, while the other gospels were written a bit more like a reporter or a biographer would have written things down, just making sure all the details and events were clear, John was really more concerned with the theology of who Jesus is. John wants us to know what Jesus means. So he is really far more philosophical, theological, even artistic in his writing. And so John begins his gospel echoing Genesis 1 by writing this, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have anything like that. So for many people, John's their favorite gospel for those very reasons. But for others, they prefer Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're really a bit more straightforward, easier to understand in ways. Okay, so then after John's gospel is written, we likely have one other New Testament book written. And that's the book of Revelation, which we're planning, Lord willing, to study together next year. So get ready for that. And Revelation, it was written again somewhere between about 95 to 100 AD. Okay, all right, so now a pop quiz. Okay, the earliest books of the New Testament were what? Paul's letters. And what was the first gospel written? It was the Gospel of Mark right around 65 AD. Okay, so now by about 120 AD, the four gospels that we have began to be assembled and they started to be passed around to churches together. So they began to be called the fourfold gospel or the quadriform gospel. And then alongside that, the letters of Paul, they were also circulating together among the churches. And, and you wonder, and you ask the question, okay, so why did these separate writings begin to be sent around, assembled together? 
And in part, it was because of a technological advancement that really moved societies from handwritten scrolls to handwritten books. Now, books began to be assembled even before the birth of Jesus, but really, it wasn't until the end of the first century that that technology really began to catch on. So rather than handing around 10 scrolls of Paul's different letters, they were put together into one book. So that was really part of the impetus behind assembling the different writings of the New Testament into one book, into one testament. All right, so right up to about 150 AD, all of these gospels and writings are circulating. They're being used by the church and also already recognized as unique and authoritative in a different way. And, and then around 150 AD, there's an even increased need to specifically identify and determine which writings are scriptural, which are authoritative, which writings form the canon of the New Testament. And canon is just a word that means the standard or the norm. And in part, this desire for a canon was because in the later second century, additional writings were starting to pop up and come out, claiming to be authored by the apostles, even though the apostles, by that point, were long dead. So the church had to determine, okay, was this really written by Peter, or was it not written by Peter? And, and then there was another impetus behind the desire to clarify this New Testament canon, and it was that there was this very popular teacher who was named Marcion. And Marcion rejected all of the Jewish-sounding Gospels and letters, and he only held on to and kept the Gospel of Luke and Paul's letters, which he thought were the least Jewish writings. Okay, now, some people suggest that the canon wasn't formed until the late 4th century. So I just want to make sure we see that long before that, the church it was already recognizing and clarifying which writings were authoritative. So when it came to 367 AD, when there was this early church father, his name was Athanasius, and when he wrote, these are the 27 books of the New Testament and listed the 27 books we now have. And then a bit later in 397 AD, when that list of 27 was also affirmed by the third council of the church at Carthage. The authoritative writings, they really had already been long recognized and used. It was really just a few of the writings that were the ones in question. The book of Revelation was one, in part because it was so different. It is the only apocalyptic writing in the New Testament. And then in addition to that, the epistles of Peter, and those of John were also ones that the church grappled with in this. Okay, so there's our timeline. All right, so now let's ask, okay, so by what criteria, criteria did they determine which writings were indeed part of the New Testament canon? Which is a great question. And there were really three main criteria that I want to touch on that guided the church in identifying Scripture over its first four centuries. Three criteria. And the first criterion was apostolicity. Apostolicity. And, and simply meaning 
Does this document have roots connected to one of the apostles? Was it either written by an apostle or by a student or associate of one of the apostles? And the four gospels that we have in the New Testament all meet this requirement. I mean, Matthew is associated with the disciple Matthew, who is also referred to in the gospels as Levi, the tax collector. Mark, he wasn't one of the 12, but he was a student of, he was the translator for Peter. Luke was known as a beloved physician. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was a close friend of the apostle Paul. And then John is a gospel connected with the disciple John. And by the way, the other books of the New Testament, like the letters of Paul or the letters of John or Peter, they all meet this same criterion. So the first criterion was apostolicity. Okay, then a second criterion they used was orthodoxy. And orthodox just literally means correct belief for teaching. So to be included in the canon, the contents of the book, they had to be consistent with existing scripture and the teachings of Jesus. Now, you likely know that there are other writings, epistles, and stories that aren't in our New Testament that claim to be written by an apostle, even though, again, they were written long after the apostles had died. And these writings, they, they weren't included in the canon because they didn't measure up to the standard to the orthodoxy of the other New Testament writings. So there are old gospels of Peter, of Judas, of Bartholomew, of Philip, and even one of the 12 disciples. And there's another gospel that's also quite old, that is perhaps the most talked about recently. You might have even heard about it. I mean, it was probably written about 50 years after the Gospel of John, and John, again, was the latest of the New Testament Gospels. And this book is called The Gospel of Thomas. And some have argued, like the writer Dan Brown, that the Gospel of Thomas ought to have been taken more seriously. And he suggests, and others suggest, that it was unfairly not included in the New Testament, in part because they suggest it lifts up women when they believe the church didn't want to lift up women. Which can make you wonder, so is that the case? Well, let's see. I mean, here's one of the reasons why it wasn't included. Let me just read for you the very last part of the Gospel of Thomas and ask yourself, okay, is this consistent with the teachings of Jesus? Does this sound orthodox? Okay, so this is the very last part of the Gospel of Thomas, and this is what we read in saying 114. Simon Peter said, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Aren't you glad that didn't make it into the Bible? Doesn't that sound a little odd? Doesn't really lift up women, right? I mean, as you can see, even by that reading, there's a reason why Thomas and really these other Gnostic Gospels were rejected. Okay, you want to hear another example from Thomas? 
This is from chapter 14 in the Gospel of Thomas. And it tells the story of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, bringing a teacher to the young Jesus to teach the young Jesus Hebrew and Greek. And the teacher gets frustrated with Jesus' poor attitude. He strikes Jesus on the head. And then we read this. This is in the Gospel of Thomas, chapter 14, verse 4. Then Jesus became angry and cursed him. Immediately the teacher lost consciousness and fell on his face. Then Jesus turned back to Joseph's house, but Joseph was distressed. He instructed the boy's mother, don't let him out the door because if people who anger him will die. That sound consistent with the other gospels we have? I mean, so two of the criteria that they used for determining which writings were authoritative, one was apostolicity, the second with orthodoxy. And then there was a third criterion, and it was Catholicity. Catholicity. Okay, meaning what? Well, Catholicity means really universality. M meaning that in order for a book to be included in the New Testament, it really had to have widespread influence in churches universally, in Israel, in Asia Minor, in Rome, and beyond. And it had to have continued acceptance and use, really, by the church at large. So the reality is that by the fourth century, when these church councils were pulled together, they weren't determining which books would be in the Bible. They were really simply recognizing which books had already been guiding the church universal in its opening centuries. It was not just some church committee or council saying, okay, these are going to be our scriptures. No. It was the churches collectively recognizing these are the texts that we have all viewed as authoritative scripture for three centuries. And again, this all took some time, and there were a few books where the decision was quite difficult. But the materials and gospels that are included in the New Testament, they were the ones that met these three criteria. Apostolicity, orthodoxy, and Catholicity. You know, it was a great old Scottish seminary professor by the name of Dr. William Barclay who put it this way. It is the simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical because no one could stop them from doing so. It was so evident. I mean, because they had power and authority to them that the church universal collectively recognized. Because, friends, the scriptures, they aren't just some writings where you read about God. They are writings where by the Holy Spirit, you encounter God. I mean, God, of course, he is active everywhere at all times and all places, but he is present in a special and unique way in the scriptures. And that's why the writer of Hebrews would say, I mean, for the word of God, it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow. This writing is something of God. So can I encourage you? I mean, for the next 30 or 40 days, can I encourage you to get your Bible out and read it? Perhaps just stop berating it, stop being cynical about it, for just enough time just to read it. 
I mean, maybe you've walked with God for a long time, or maybe you're just beginning to search him out. So can I encourage you, just start in the New Testament. Really read it, maybe the book of Luke, or maybe the Gospel of John. And, and just spend 10 minutes a day just reading it, reflecting on it, and, and trying to understand it as best you can. And I encourage you, when you read it, just ask two questions when you read. Just read a passage and ask for one. So what does this tell me about God? And then secondly, ask a question. So what does this tell me about myself or how I should live? I mean, is there a guidance here for me? A promise to hold on to? Is there encouragement really to receive? Is there a truth here I need to stand on? And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to come by here. We have free ones for you at our Welcome Center. And really then, continue to join with us on weekends, on-site or online, as we teach right out of this book every week and apply it to our lives. And see what effect that has on your opinion as to whether or not this book is inspired and trustworthy. And see if it doesn't have that ring of truth about it that leads you to say, I'm going to be guided by this word. Because Jesus, he wants to guide you. He wants to feed you. And he does it in part through this word. And praise God, friends, he also does it. He also guides and feeds us through this meal. So we come now and we in faith remember what Christ has done for us but we also prepare to receive from God by his spirit in this. We break this bread, remembering the body of Christ broken. We drink this cup, remembering his blood poured out. And we call out to the Father together, Oh, Father, would you feed us with this meal by your spirit? We need your nourishment and guidance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So can I invite your friends to take out whatever the bread looks like that you have there with you, and hold it to it for a moment because the word became flesh and the body of Christ was broken for you. So take, eat, and receive from Christ. Then similarly with the cup, we come to the cup remembering the wonder that the blood of Christ was poured out for you. And in this, we receive. I invite you to drink. Will you pray with me, please? Oh God, our gracious Father, how we thank you that you speak to us again. We thank you. Above all, we thank you for speaking to us through your Son, and we thank you for the gift of this meal and the wonder of what he's done for us. So Father, I pray by your Spirit's power this week as we turn to your word, as we read it, cause us to hear from you. Give us insight, I pray, by your Spirit, Father. And form us, even as you formed your early church through these writings, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' incredible name. And all God's people say, Amen.
So good to be with you, friends, and do hope you can join with us next weekend, again, on-site or online, because we're beginning a new teaching series next weekend that we're calling When the Days Are Challenging, because we live in challenging days. So how do we face and endure difficult times? So we're going to learn from the prophet Habakkuk in this, who ministered and lived in very challenging times. So hope you can join with us for that. And as you walk into this weekend, whatever it holds for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, this week you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.